Hi, and welcome to episode number 26 of the CryptoChick Podcast, your inside resource for the latest blockchain and crypto trends. I'm your host, the CryptoChick, Rachel Wolfson. Today, I'm interviewing Charles Hoskinson, CEO and co-founder of IOHK. In this episode, Charles discusses how American footwear company, New Balance, will use the Cardano blockchain to verify the origins of its products. Later in the episode, Charles comments on the work IOHK is performing in certain countries to help implement blockchain-based government solutions. Finally, Charles shares his thoughts on China and the country's plans to use blockchain technology, explaining why this is compatible with China's utopian viewpoint. He also brings up blockchain morals and ethics, mentioning that China's use of blockchain might make people more hesitant to see governments adopt blockchain strategies. Let's get right to my interview with Charles. Enjoy. Okay, so I'm here with Charles Hoskinson. He's the Chief Executive Officer of IOHK. Hi, Charles. How are you? Very good. Pleasure to be on, Rachel. Yeah, it's a pleasure to have you on. Um, So um, there's some news that's come out recently, and I think that's kind of the first question that, you know, I want to ask you, and I think it's the first topic that we should talk about, what you're doing with New Balance um, on the Cardano blockchain. So can you kind of give us some details around that? Yeah, this is one of those fun projects that you kind of discover as you're building things that there's a commercial need. So it's an authentication product, and uh, the hope is to eventually scale it out, if not with New Balance, then through other verticals, to actually cover the broader counterfeit market. So if you look at counterfeiting, you look at authentication, it's about a trillion dollars a year of goods are counterfeited. So you an overwhelming number. And this can be everything from counterfeit software to handbags to watches to shoes, whatever you may look at. And it's, a, it's very damaging for these high-end brands. Uh, for example, 9 out of 10 Rolexes are fake. So you know, do you really want to spend $30,000 on a watch that most people when they look at will think that that watch is not real? So it's uh, it's something that every one of these luxury brand companies has to deal with. And if you go to Chanel's website, for example, they say right on the website, I'm sorry, we can't authenticate products for you. So you can have this beautiful high-end Chanel bag and then go to the store and say, can you tell me if this is real or not? And the own company that manufactured the product is not in a position to actually tell you that. So New Balance is moving into uh, basketball shoes and higher-end shoes. And uh, the Kawhi Leonard product line in particular is, is very important to their commercial strategy. And so because they're competing against bigger companies like Nike and others, they really did want to do something to help differentiate what they're bringing to market from their competitors. So they thought it would be really cool if they could put some form of a blockchain authentication product into the Kawhi Leonard product. So what we did is we worked with kind of a skunk works within New Balance. And what we were able to do is find a way to actually create an authentication product that could be added at the end of the supply chain. So basically literally added right at the store that's selling the product as opposed to somewhere deeper into the supply chain, which meant that it didn't require changing the supply chain. It didn't require cumbersome redesign of the shoes or things like that because they have very long product cycles there. Uh, And this is a a really cool pilot. And if it's successful, what we'll be able to do is over time extend that to deeper product verticals and then eventually take that beyond just a shoe and perhaps other things like handbags and watches and so forth. And uh, basically, it's a very simple product. It's a little card. It's built by a partner of ours called Tangem. Uh, branded as real chain, and it's uh, basically a cryptocurrency wallet that holds a special token that's on the crypt- on the Cardano blockchain, and each of those tokens represent a pair of shoes. So when you buy the product, you get the card and the shoes, and what you do is you connect the card to the shoes. 
And then uh, basically that acts as a certificate of authenticity for the shoe. And so whenever you see the shoe, if the card is absent, then you have no way of authenticating it. But if the card is there, then you know that the shoes are legitimate. I see. And so is it possible, because I know there are some interesting use cases, like, for instance, the IBM Food Trust Network, and you mm-hmm. can go into Carrefour and scan some of their products, and you can actually see where that, um, you know, banana came from, just mm-hmm. as an example. So is it something where when the consumer buys the New Balance shoes, they can scan it and see where the materials yep. actually came from? Uh, they can scan the card, and at the moment the card will be linked to the shoe, but the card contains metadata. And there's actually two cell phone apps we created, one for iOS and one for Android. So you can download the app right now. Uh, it's uh, in both app stores. And the hope is that over time we can get this card solution deeper into the supply chain. And if that's the case, then we can start getting supply chain data. For example, you'd be able to tell uh, where uh, the shoe was manufactured, the particular person who made the shoe, the factories that, uh, that touched the shoe, if it was made with fair trade standards or sustainable production standards, uh, how it got shipped. Uh, and so forth. Uh, all this metadata that is internally known and understood by the uh, by the New Balance company, you would be able to actually see that as a consumer. In addition to this, our hope is eventually to make this more of a platform. So instead of having one bespoke solution for one particular company for one product vertical, you could just have a single app you could download, and then you'll be able to go to any luxury product, scan it, and then that luxury product, you'll be able to see that same trail of custody and that authentication from that product. Right. So in your sit, you're, you're, it seems to be that you know you're focused on luxury products. Mm-hmm. So which is great because I think you know it's important to know that, like you said, a Chanel bag is it actually a Chanel bag versus you know a fake one? Mm-hmm. But would it be a solution that would eventually maybe merge into the food industry, for instance, right. or any other? industries like that? Yeah, you have to start somewhere, but the great part is that you know, once you strip off the luxury label and you actually start looking at the mechanics of how these things work, a supply chain solution is quite similar to an authentication solution. Because basically you're saying, what is the story of this particular product I'm looking at? So part of that story is, is this a real product or not? But then also part of that story is, where has it been? And who manufactured it? How was it manufactured? And who would test to the credibility of those claims that are made. And that's basically what a supply chain is when you actually want to model a supply chain. So uh, the reuse of software, the reuse of solutions, the reuse of materials uh, is is quite high between what we're doing for New Balance and what we'd eventually do for, let's say, a coffee traceability supply chain or uh, maybe a a carbon supply chain or something like that. Mm -hmm. Right, and so you said this is in in pilot stage now, so it's not... In production yet? It is in production, oh, actually. It is. So this is the great part about it, doing it with the Skunk Works. This was actually put into real products. So we were in Los Angeles at the launch of the Kawhi Leonard shoe, and right there when people were buying the shoe, they were actually authenticating their shoe. They were connecting oh, wow. the card to the uh, to the shoe. Oh, that's awesome. So, uh, so it's a paid pilot, too, so we actually make revenue from it. So it's okay. it's so great working with New Balance. It's a slightly smaller company than, let's say, Nike. So And, and so they, they have to be more agile, and they have to be a bit more aggressive with things. And so uh, they were a perfect partner to work with us to actually – not only do a pilot, but actually bring a pilot to market and then see the customer feedback. And now we kind of get all these great signals. For example, there's a secondary marketplace for shoes called StockX. A lot of the sneaker heads, they go there to buy their Jordans or whatever it happens to be. So now you can actually see the price delta between the Kawhi Leonard's 
that were shipped uh, without authentication versus the Koi Leonard's that are actually authenticated in the blockchain. And then that delta actually tells you the value the consumer places on authentication. So you get real numbers in a marketplace for what these products actually mean. The sales figures of the shoe line as well will also determine New Balance's appetite to extend the solution or not. But it is a real product. It is in market. Consumers are using it, and uh, the app is already deployed. And as I said, you can actually download it on your phone right now. And uh, if you had a pair of shoes, you'd be able to actually uh, scan the card. That's awesome. Was it difficult? I mean, I know, you know, enterprise blockchain and Mm -hmm. some enterprises are hesitant to adopt the technology and, you know, maybe they don't understand the benefits. So you're working with New Balance. Was it difficult to kind of, you know, I guess, talk them into using the solution or were they accepting of it and willing? It it was the craziest thing. Uh, Uh They came to us. We didn't come to them. Oh, wow. So that was that was a crazy thing. Um, not really, because it, you know, it, it's all dependent on how you handle the deal, and also what does the deal mean for that company. So they got to walk in and use their own brand. They got to walk in and define the rules, the customer experience, the data policies. They just gave us a list of business requirements and technical requirements from their perspective. And then what we got to do was figure out how do we make this work? How do we make this profitable? How do we get a good user experience from this? So we got to be a software company, and they got to be a shoe company. So as long as you have well-defined, clear roles and you understand how to work with those customers, uh, then it's very easy to do business with people. Because it's not saying, well, I'll blockchain this or blockchain that. No one authenticating your shoes at that New Balance store in Los Angeles when we were there even knew they were using a cryptocurrency or a blockchain. All they saw was a card, a cell phone app. They got to scan something, enter some information, and that was that. And that's the kind of experience you have to chase. And so from New Balance's perspective, a blockchain was a means to an end rather than an end onto itself. And they didn't care if it was Cardano or Ethereum or this or that. It was more about, can you do the job and will this meet our needs? And can we grow with you and can this scale with our business needs? And if you can propose that, then usually business relationships are quite easy to maintain and they're ongoing and sustainable and so forth. Right, yeah. Let's talk a little bit about, I know that you've been working with, I think it's a government, maybe it's Africa? Several governments. Okay. Uh, one in Georgia, one in Mongolia, and then uh, in Africa, in Ethiopia. Okay. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, updates there? What's going on? What mm-hmm. are you guys doing? So we have an unusual way of entering countries. Uh, you know, most people there and they immediately try to sell something to somebody. And we said, well, look, Africa is a relationship-based continent. Uh, there, they tend to buy from vendors they trust and know. They tend to buy from people they have personal relationships with. And they've uh, basically forged something beyond just, are these numbers good? Or is this business deal good? They look beyond the deal and they look to the person behind the deal. And so we, we felt it was very important that before we even try to sell anything, that we just build substance and credibility within the jurisdictions that we choose to operate in. So the way we decided to enter and build substance and credibility is by giving something uh, in Africa. And so we said the best thing we could give as a technology company are job skills and training and education because we're academics. We know how to teach. This is kind of our background. So we entered in uh, Ethiopia last year. Uh, We spent quite a bit of time designing and then eventually deploying a course. And we took 23 women, 19 from Ethiopia and four from Uganda, and we taught them state-of-the-art programming skills, things that you learn at MIT or at Harvard, not not just the local community college or something. This wasn't like full-stack stuff. This was Haskell, like really hardcore things. And uh, we did that in partnership with the Ministry of Innovation and Technology. And every single one of the girls who attended the class not only uh, attended but passed so what we then did is we made very compelling job offers to them 
uh, and we got about six, I think, of the 23. And what was so amazing was that they had other offers and people were trying to get them after we got through, which means mission accomplished, right? Not only do we provide jobs, now we've created people that are so desirable that other people wanted to hire them and in some cases hired them for more than we were willing to pay. Uh, so uh, that's what we gave. And what it allowed us to do then is to leverage that credibility and that goodwill and faith to then have a discussion with the Ethiopian government about how do they modernize. They have the same problem that every one of these agricultural African countries have, which is that globalization is forcing them to upgrade. It's no longer the case. They can just keep business as usual and maybe we'll get around to it next year. The reality is Starbucks is going to show up and say, we love your coffee. We think it's a great product, but we need to start proving things about your supply chain, like uh, are you using fair trade or sustainable farming practices and so forth. And if you're based on paper and the beans are going on the back of a donkey and nothing's written down, you can't prove it. So your only option is to upgrade. But then when you're having that discussion, you start realizing, wait a minute, I need an identity management system. I need payment systems. I need better telecommunications infrastructure. I need more credibility at the warehouses and auditability at this. And when you start out deconstructing all of that, you realize you need a humongous government-wide upgrade of your entire IT stack. So what we can do is come in and say, do you want to, to use an analogy, go ahead and put copper wire in the ground for your phone system? Or do you want to go to 4G? In our case, do you want to go to the old legacy systems that America and the European Union are using because they kind of built them and they just are living with them? Or do you want to go to a blockchain-based system, which is state-of-the-art and has all these really nice properties and furthermore gives you additional credibility? And now you're operating in a state-of-the-art economy, which is actually faster and better than your American counterpart. And when they hear that and they say, wow, that's really cool, and you add in the fact that a lot of that can even be built domestically because we created talent right there in Addis Ababa, and they can hire Ethiopians to build this state-of-the-art solution and domestically manufacture it, uh, it makes it a significantly easier sale in that, in that respect. So what did we do? Well, we talked to the ministry, and right now we're uh, in the process of designing a feasibility study in a pilot specifically for a utility token that will be used in the city of Addis Ababa to pay for water and power utilities. It's a huge problem for them. There's about 4 million people in this city, and if you want to pay your water bill, your power bill, you have to go to these kiosks. And sometimes the lines are hours long, and then after you pay it, sometimes it doesn't register properly, and your power still gets shut off, your water still gets shut off. And this is like a monthly battle. Like Every month you have to do this. So it's ubiquitously hated within the entire city. They said, we should change that. So we said, well, we build currencies. We, we do this for a living. Why don't we go ahead and digitize the bearer, the local currency that you guys have, and then create a cell phone app and allow people to pay uh, for their water bill, their power bill online. And they get the auditability and the timestamping, the immutability, all the advantages of a blockchain solution. But the minute you do that, then it opens up this entire magic web and spectrum of possibilities. For example, you say, well, hang on a second. Do you want authentication behind the payments? Do you want to connect identity to it? Well, we can build an identity system for you. And once you have that, well, you can do voting systems and census systems. And once you have that, we can connect that to your supply chain problems that you have and so forth. We can use it for uh, social welfare distribution. For example, if you want to pay universal basic income or if you want to do direct subsidies to certain peoples in certain neighborhoods that are economically disenfranchised. All of these magical possibilities open up. And the cost of pilots, the cost of trials, the cost of experiments are extremely low because you have the infrastructure now to run these things. And literally, you can just push a few buttons on a keyboard and deploy a solution that, uh, that can be scoped to whatever you want to try as a policymaker. So all of a sudden, it comes from how do we do business, how do we de-risk the business to excitement. People are fired up and they say, wow, uh, 
I can't wait. Maybe we can do this. And you have to slow them down and say, okay, one thing at a time. You know, we actually have to still execute a product and so forth. Uh, so it's been a lot of fun being in Ethiopia. We, we certainly learned a lot. And it's, uh, it's hard because Africa's hard. It's, it's got its own unique challenges as a business jurisdiction. Uh, but never once in that entire relationship did I ever wake up and say, oh, no, this will never happen or it's all going to fall apart tomorrow or something like that. It was more of, well, you know, how do we stay alive long enough and, you know, how do we develop a thick enough skin to get through all the challenges and hurdles and at the end of the rainbow, we feel that we're going to be able to have a significant impact that's really going to transform the lives of some of the poorest people in the world. Right. Yeah. And, and I mean, that's amazing. And I can't wait to hear more updates on that. You know, it's interesting because I think that blockchain can really revolutionize the world in different ways. But I think governments in particular should be paying attention to it. And, you know, there are certain governments that are. And for instance, like America seems to not be one of those governments. But just kind of like on that note, what do you think about China and mm. their recent, you know, enthusiasm for blockchain? Um, and do you think that that will help encourage America to kind of get on this blockchain revolution? You know, it's, it's kind of funny. We tend to look at what the Congress and the Senate say, and we say, oh, well, since the senator said this or this congressman said this or since Trump tweeted this, the U.S. policy must be anti-blockchain or anti-innovation or telling entrepreneurs what they need to do. But the, the magic of America is that we just get it done despite our government. If you don't like our space program, we build our own space program. You know, if we don't think they're spending enough money on AI research, we just form our own billion-dollar AI company or something like that. We just innovate, and this is who we are as a culture. Uh, so in terms of blockchain innovation, you know, IOHK is now an American company. We're based in Wyoming. So every innovation we make, well, that's an American, American company doing that. And the U.S. government does have an appetite for the types of technology, and in many cases, did all the initial funding for the types of technologies. Like we're a world leader quantum computing and homomorphic encryption. We're a world leader in computer science research. So all the things that you would need for us to be extremely competitive in this industry, we really get. As for China's pivot to blockchain, it's part of a master plan they have with social credit. Xi has this vision that he's gonna eventually be able to put a number on each of his citizens' heads. And if the number is high, they're a good citizen. If the number is low, uh, they're a bad citizen. We call this social credit. And it's so pernicious that uh, low numbers make you a pariah. Basically, people can see it. And when AR comes, you can physically see it on somebody. The number will be right next to them. And if you associate with them, your number goes down. So it basically creates an untouchables class within the country. And they're doing this for political reasons. Well, to be effective, you need to aggregate all the data together. You need total information awareness. And you need to put that in some location where it can't be tampered with so that people can cheat the system. So blockchain is quite compatible for this dystopian view that they have. And also a completely digital currency is compatible because then they can also have the lever of shutting off your money. If your social credit gets too low, they can shut your, your ability to spend money and process payments off. Uh, so their pivot there is, is quite scary. And, and there, there's some things we read out of Beijing. For example, some of the politicians there say, we'd love to use blockchain to force people to pledge loyalty to the Communist Party, for example. And there's thousands of things like that that are coming up. And they're starting to fall in love with this whole immutability thing and transparency thing. Because then they can see the whole ledger and the record. In this case, instead of financial transactions, it's people transactions. Uh, so that 
in essence, is really going to tell us who we are in America as a culture and who the world is as a culture, because we now get to see how China is using this tool, and we have to decide if that's okay, and then contrast ourselves to that. So I don't think it's a question of innovation. I think it's more of a question of ethics and philosophy, and it's a question of morality. And uh, by having China enter the market, it's now putting a flag down on a use case of this technology, and maybe it's going to make people a little bit more hesitant to say that we should overregulate the market or hand the entire market over to a government or something like that, and say maybe we should let this thing be a little bit、uh, more libertarian and a little bit more hands off, and also push some of the power to the edges of the system.、Uh, that said, it will create an enormous amount of innovation. They will probably, over a period of several years, spend billions of dollars in China. On blockchain technology, and a lot of this technology will end up being open source. So it's going to be a land grab, and we can use it as much as China can use it, and other people can use it. And how it's used is ultimately going to be dependent upon,、uh, you know, it, personal preferences, ethics, and philosophy. Right, and I think you, I mean, you bring up a very good point for sure. I think blockchain ethics is also an interesting thing that we need to start exploring because, and I read a very interesting article in the MIT Technology Review about blockchain ethics. But it's like, just on that point, you know, if a node goes down, who's responsible and what happens?、Mm -hmm. I think that now that we're seeing governments implement implement blockchain, and you know, this is a technology that's here to stay. Clearly, we need to think about the ethics behind it. Do you have anything to comment on that? Yeah, it's the same problem with AI or quantum computing or any of these emergent technologies. Uh, you know, the minute that you build something, technology is intrinsically neutral. It doesn't. It, it's like a scalpel. You can use it to cut someone, or you can use it to take out a heart. You can do good things and bad things with it. You can heal or harm with it. Similarly, technology can heal or harm. So there needs to be greater foresight in the deployment and construction of this technology than just the question of will this make me money. The problem with the way we build businesses today and the way that entrepreneurship works is that your key metric has always been: can you sell it? Who can you sell it to? How much money can you make? When can you make the money? And how do you make your investors whole? And if that's the only lens you look at, then it's entirely reasonable to go and work with China and do very dystopian things, or other authoritarian regimes and do dystopian things. You know, and some companies try very hard to to make mantras, like Google for a long time famously had "Don't be evil." They say, "Well, we're not going to work with these bad people." And then all of a sudden, their shareholders say, "Well, you have a fiduciary obligation to do so." You see, so the question of our industry, though, is: Can we somehow embed so deeply into the design of the systems that instead of "won't be evil," you have a property of "can't be evil," meaning the system can't behave in ways that harm people, such as privacy by design or self-sovereign identity or pushing power to the edges. Uh, this is kind of a different concept. The other thing is who gets to decide. I'm a CEO of a company. It's a hierarchical organization, and at the end of the day, the buck stops with me, and I get to wake up and say, "Well, what do I think is best?" So, in essence, whether we're good or evil largely depends on whether I have a good day or a bad day. If I'm a good actor or a bad actor, and that's mostly true for most American companies. Mark Zuckerberg has a huge influence of whether Facebook is acting well or not. Uh, Bob Iger has a you know huge impact on whether Disney is a good company or not, whether they use their IP monopoly to harm people or help people and so forth. But blockchain protocols are so cool in that there is no top, there is no leader, there is no CEO, there is no one there who has a bad day and behaves inappropriately. Instead, the power is now pushed to the edges, and so you trade efficiency and you trade optimization for resilience. 
basically the system reaches a steady state around whatever the morality was programmed into it, and it kind of just stays there. And if you try to perturb it, it doesn't care. For example, we have this travel rule coming out with, uh, with Bitcoin and, uh, you know, with the FATF. And Bitcoin doesn't care about the travel rule. It's not going to change itself. It's not going to embed identity into the ledger. It's just Bitcoin. The Bitcoin core developers lost millions of dollars during the collapse of Mt. Gox. Not a single one of them even had the, the balls to try to propose reversing those transactions so they could get their money back. Because they knew it would be Puric. There was no way to win that fight. Destroy the product. Uh, so it's a, a new class of technology, and it's something that is really complicated to think about. And there's certainly a lot of great things, like from the nanotechnology world, we have the great goo phenomena or the paperclip machine. Like if you build some sort of nano machine that builds something and it doesn't really understand the consequences of what it's doing and it just mindlessly does it, it could end up destroying us all, right? Similarly, if you build these protocols and you get the ethics wrong, then the protocols could be weaponized or become quite harmful to society. So I think a first-class citizen in the business planning, in the capital deployment, and in the strategy of how these things are executed and delivered is ethics. I honestly believe that. It, and a great analogy is uh, what Elon Musk is doing with AI. It's no longer a question of can we build a general intelligence or not. He's saying, how should we want this general intelligence to be governed and behave, and what type of ethics do we want that general intelligence to have? And a large part of that billion dollars of capital he has is earmarked specifically to answer that question, not just delivering this thing to market. And similarly, we have a moral obligation as people who build blockchains in the industry to think very deeply about how do you build ethics into the ledger and build basically a philosophy into the ledger where these things can't be weaponized against us and are actually socially beneficial. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's it's extremely important. And I think it's a topic that really needs to be discussed more. So I appreciate your thoughts on that. So any final thoughts before we end the podcast? Anything that you think that we should know that we didn't already cover today? Well, we've got a lot of stuff coming out at IOHK. The incentivized test net for Cardano is coming out in November, and that's going to be a super exciting launch, and we'd love as many people as possible to download the software and test it and play around with it. Uh, you know, we uh, we have certainly a lot of cool things on the Atala side that will be announced and coming, uh, and so that'll be a lot of fun. But more often than not, we just love people going to our website and getting to know who we are, iohk.io, and uh, also if you like our products, uh, follow us on Twitter or go to our Reddit and just uh, let us know what you like about them or not like about them, and uh, dialogue is important. You know, these are open communities, and these are open protocols, so the more people using them, the better they become. Right, yeah, agreed. Well, thank you so much, Charles. It's always a pleasure to interview you, and yeah, I'm, I'm sure our listeners are just so happy to hear your thoughts. Cheers. Thanks so much for joining us today. You can find further information in the show notes to learn more about Charles and IOHK. And if you enjoyed listening to this episode of the Crypto Chick Podcast, please be sure to subscribe to the show. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. Also, if you have time, please leave me a review. I enjoy hearing your feedback. You can reach out to me on Twitter at RachelWolf00, on LinkedIn, or on Instagram at Blockchain and Bikinis. Thanks for listening. See you all next time.